0: The Bonfires of Social Enterprise with Detroit-based Rami Gingrass of Gingrass Global.
1: Today we're interviewing Christian Berkey with Lazlo. Christian, tell us about your business.
0: Thanks for having me, Rami. The company I'm working on, Lazlo, is about to launch for a sustainable men's clothing company based out of Detroit, really focused on pushing the boundaries on quality and the good that we can create coming out of clothing. I've always been a creative visual person, but I didn't necessarily always think about where my clothing came from. Then when I was in school a couple years ago, I had the chance to model in a sustainable fashion show and started looking at the clothing options available for men um, and was kind of disappointed in the results when I was looking at clothing I actually wanted to wear made by companies I wanted to support. So I started looking at kind of the opportunity to make men's clothing in a better way and settled on doing it here in Detroit in my home state using all natural materials. So 100% organic cotton and really looking at ways that we could create social impact through the types of materials we use, the workforce we hired, etc.
1: Would you give the listening audience some of the lay of the land of how it's traditionally done and what that means, what the negative effects of that, and why you want to do it differently?
0: The clothing we wear comes from all over the world right now. 98% of the clothing in the U.S. is actually imported, a number that's significantly higher than at any point in history. And when we start looking, it's often developing countries where there are limited to no environmental regulations and limited to no workforce or working condition regulations. So what we see is a lot of clothing made by young children, women in poor working conditions that are exposed to toxic chemicals. They're working 80 plus hours a week and getting paid maybe not even 50 cents an hour. A good example of this is the biggest garment industry tragedy in history happened in 2013 when over a thousand workers were killed in a factory collapse in Bangladesh. And these aren't just, you know, super low, low priced outlet retailers. These are, you know, brands across the spectrum.
1: You've really done some research on this and it's really become part of your authentic foundation, hasn't it, on why you want to do things differently. Will you help me understand why you think Michigan is a good place to start to build that foundation?
0: I've always loved the Midwest. Growing up in such a beautiful state in Michigan in particular, I think it's hard not to get attached to the place, but being in a state like this, it's for me, makes you realize how lucky you are and seeing that, you know, whether it's the natural beauty or the the sense of community, you know, for me, it felt like a great place to try something new. Obviously, right now, there's a lot of energy in Detroit around creative solutions to, you know, employment issues to environmental issues. And it's really an opportunity to take a risk and do something different.
1: And there's many that argue that are Somewhat hovering over the garment manufacturing, fashion areas that we have a lot of set up with the automotive industry to facilitate this type of manufacturing in all the different channels that have that participate from cutting, dyeing, sewing, and all the different pieces.
0: Detroit, in particular, has a wealth of resources around manufacturing. What it also has is this kind of brand that's coming back around this idea of made in Detroit, especially in the garment industry, there are a lot of people that are looking for authenticity and for quality and you know, we really feel that Detroit is an opportunity to tap into that not in a we're going to do this cuz we're going to make a ton of money off it, but in a you know, we're going to connect with people with shared values, which is, you know, hard work, high quality, down to earth products.
1: Love that. That's so true. That is an authentic element of the resurgence of Detroit. Before we get talking about the products you're going to launch with, uh, give us a feel about the name Laszlo. I know there's a unique story with that.
0: <laughs> so I didn't realize quite how hard it would be to name a clothing company. It turns out there's a few trademarks out there in the industry. Um, but one of the, the names that kept coming back to me was Lazlo And my favorite movie is Casablanca. And the company was inspired by, in part, the character Victor Laszlo, who's kind of the dapper, daring leader of the Czech rebellion against the Nazis, and he epitomizes that gentleman that is both you know, a visionary, but also a, a down-to-earth, kind person that kind of hits both sides of what we're going for.
1: I always love it when there's some meaning, meaningful um, visioning behind the name that completely fits you uh, from the little bit I've gotten to know you lately. So let's move into your products. Uh, I know we're starting with a t-shirt, and uh, why don't you give us a feel for your first line item that you're going to introduce and then ongoing
0: vision. So we decided to start with, you know, the item that I turn to every morning, which is the white crew neck t-shirt. It's an American icon, one of the most enduring items in menswear, and also something that I felt comfortable taking on from the beginning. So our heirloom tee was designed with the kind of thought process of what would it look like to make a t-shirt that we could hand down to our kids someday. And I don't have kids yet, but it's this kind of thought process of, you know, how do we think about something that, you know, you can pick up in a three pack and and essentially a disposable item and instead think about it as, you know, something to be treasured and, you know, worn and repaired and loved. So we're starting with 100% organic cotton. We worked with a mill out in LA to custom make the highest quality organic cotton available in the world. It's this Supima cotton that has really long, strong fibers. And the second you put it on, you realize just how soft and and wonderful it is. But yes, the focus was, you know, can we create this great white t-shirt, this American icon with an updated fit and high quality construction, while also sticking true to our values of, you know, sustainability in the environment. So although we're starting with just a white t-shirt, we'll soon be adding an indigo version. So we're going to hand dive and naturally grown indigo in this you know adds to our offering but also stays true to you know the goal of not having anyone in the supply chain be exposed to any toxic chemicals and to doing it locally indigo has been used for thousands of years to dye clothing and turns out this kind of rich beautiful deep blue color
1: i know that you and i have talked about some of the expansion plans that setting up dye manufacturing would help for the overall ecosystem of the fashion manufacturing, there's options there that you can really provide to other entrepreneurs as a vendor if you are able to get the dye area set up, right?
0: Right. You know, indigo is a big color for it this spring and summer, but also it continues to grow in popularity within fashion offerings. So as we set up the facilities here, that also allows us to offer this natural dye house service to local midwest and national brands that are looking for it because there's not a lot of facilities set up right now in the country to handle commercial scale natural dyeing
1: will you speak into what you foresee as the demand and what age group you're targeting as your end user client for the t-shirt the first product
0: yes so as we look at it you know i it's interesting i have friends with eric Yelzma over at detroit denim and we were talking about, you know, it's a similar product in terms of quality and made in Detroit. And as we, you know, we're talking about target demographics, he said he's been shocked over and over again, the range of people that come to him for, you know, these high quality men's jeans. And he said, you know, keep an open mind to who might be buying your product. So with that said, knowing that the range of people will probably, you know, far, you know, fall far wider than this demographic, the kind of target that we've been looking at is, I mean, it's millennials, it's probably 25 to 35 year old creatives that share you know our values for sustainability for high quality and that are also I mean at some level they're also visually conscious whether that's in you know in a creative field or just interested in design there's both the set of values and then the interest in the aesthetic of the clothing that we're putting together
1: and the price point of the t-shirt is going to reflect all of these values. We're looking, you're looking to launch this uh, around a hundred dollar t-shirts, right?
0: Right. And it's interesting because I never set out, like I, I don't come from a, a fashion background, let alone a high fashion background. I studied politics in college. And when when we first started pricing this stuff out, I was actually shocked at, at what it came out to. The reality is, is that we've grown so accustomed to cheap prices that are based on using toxic chemicals and paying a workforce is well below a living wage that you know, we forget how much it costs to do thing these things the right way. Now, the other side of that is the average American guy owns something like 15 t-shirts. And what we're saying is that not only do we wanna focus on quality, but we also wanna focus on simplicity. So instead of owning 15 t-shirts, own three or four or five. And over the long term, we think that the demographic and the people that will enjoy our heirloom tea is much wider than kind of the traditional high-end fashion market, just because I see more and more people every day in my friend group and, and in, a, in a broader audience turning away from having lots of stuff and lots of clothing and this you know, idea of cheap disposable stuff that you're putting on your body and turning toward this. let's have fewer things. And that you know that lifestyle, you know what we call a meaningful simplicity allows you to focus on what matters.
1: We've talked about wearing healthy clothing, non-toxic clothing. Yeah. We're talking about alleviating the mistreatment of other human beings by producing it locally and at the right pricing. We're talking about you bringing in systems and manufacturing that not will not only help Laszlo but could potentially help support other vendors and other as a vendor other entrepreneurs in this same industry. Let's talk about what I call the social staffing. So there's social mission with your product itself, but you've got a desire to have a special type of staffing as well. Let's talk about that now.
0: One of the early on parts of this company was saying, how can we not only do well for ourselves, but create social impact? And one of the things we look at in Detroit is that there are certain parts of the city and especially in the downtown area that are are doing quite well and have a lot of momentum, but how can we bring that momentum to the rest of the city that's still struggling significantly. And my background was was in politics and prison policy. So when I was in college, I tutored in prison. I wrote my thesis on American prison policy and was blown away by the kind of level of the crisis we have in this country. We have 5% of the world's population, but 25% of its prisoners. And most of those are poor urban minority men. And over and over again, there's this cycle of recidivism where they get out, they're unable to find a job, and they end up back in prison. But obviously, that's a gross you know, oversimplification, but the reality is it's very, very hard to find a job as a returning citizen, as a man getting out of prison. And so we started to look at how we might be able to work with that population, and the kind of aha moment was last, uh, a year and a half ago, maybe fall of 2013, I found out that the Department of Corrections is actually training men to sew while in prison. So they have five sewing training programs in prisons, and they're making everything from the inmate uniforms to the guard uniforms to the the prison linens. But all of a sudden you have a marginalized workforce, which is men coming out of prison, that has a skill set that I'm looking for, which is sewing skills. And so we're working on a program to hire these men that were trained to sew well in prison once they get out. And, you know, we won't be just hiring returning citizens, but trying to pull them in as we kind of grow our manufacturing capacity. Um, And it's, I mean, I really look over and over for how can we create, you know, win-win situations. This is, like I said, a a perfect one where we get skilled, trained workers and we're also helping out a population that normally has a very hard chance to get a job.
1: I love how this... Discontinues the cycle because not only are you removing removing it from other countries where, as we just discussed, there's a lot of mistreatment of human beings in the manu- clothing manufacturing, but now you're reaching in to another people group, if you will, that sort of landed in prison because of similar situations. They were under resourced or under connected, whatever the factor was. They are now yeah. under resourced because they've got a prison record and if there's one thing that we have learned over and over again with these social enterprises whenever you're creating a a hope for another human being that they can further themselves in some way shape or form change their life change their stars change happens within that person and change happens within those communities and so as i think about your business You are the type of social enterprise that's really exciting for someone like our firm at Gingras Global to be working with because you've got the enterprise itself, the business of the t-shirt making, and that, by the way you're going about it, is offering up social mission. Then you move into the social staffing, and you're becoming part of the systemic change. You're creating employment, creating hope, and you're picking up some of the social costs that ultimately Alleviates the burden from the state for us as taxpayers and others that support it. This this cascading effect and this ripple effect from what seems like a small business getting a start has this butterfly magnitude, the butterfly effect.
0: I had someone describe it to me recently as I'm essentially upcycling the training that the state is doing, supported by taxpayer money, in a way that you know helps and helps the city out.
1: Tell me what it looks like in a grand vision at this stage of the game.
0: The idea is can we make these wardrobe essentials that look good now and look good down the road in a way that creates as much good and social change as possible while also creating this, this really high end product. The goal for Laszlo is we've always said we want our product to be able to stand on its own. You know, what we hope is a you know a, a visionary global brand for Years to come
1: you're speaking to one of my issues that I kind of put my stake in the ground on with social enterprises about their products I I'm constantly talking about getting getting their own high watermark over the mercy purchase you know it's the using a traditional example you know you're gonna buy the bracelet from the person who made it because they you know are trying to raise money to put a water well somewhere But if you put that bracelet in any other context and somebody doesn't know the story behind the bracelet, the bracelet has to stand on its own. It has to be a good, high-quality product so that it moves up ahead of a mercy purchase. You're the opposite end of that spectrum, in my opinion. You are producing the Cadillac garment for what you can do with all of the social mission behind it so it's not a mercy purchase but yet if they are supporting your product there's you know six to ten really viable measurable places of impact that you can measure that's making a difference in your community and globally
0: and we we talk about that as we don't want people to buy out of guilt and we don't want people to buy out of charity we want them to buy because the product looks good and it makes them feel good and you know, we think it's a really powerful combination of this, this story and the product. And it's interesting, you know, I applied for some fellowships and grants, and it's often the question is often framed as, you know, how does your social mission hurt your bottom line? essentially is what it comes down to, where are you spending money on social mission, where it could be spent on profit. And I don't want to say that we're chasing profit above all, because that's just not true. But I think that, there's still a lack of understanding in the way that the social mission can also benefit, you know, a a profit and triple bottom line businesses kind of get into this, but we really look at it as, you know, if we weren't organic and if we weren't going to be hiring a marginalized workforce and we weren't doing it here in Detroit, our value goes down a ton. And so we're not doing these things just because it's the right thing to do. We're doing it because in the long run, I think financially it's the smart way way to go as well.
1: Right, exactly. You know, we're, we're in a society where we're really cultured to measure everything in dollars. So some of those other things don't get measured that have high value. The other barrier that you come against in today's culture with this burgeoning social enterprise world is that they're looking for very immediate returns. So it's very short-term thinking and very, very place-centric, very local thinking and very dollar measurement only. Dollars are the only way we measure this. And so some of the challenges with social enterprises in general is how can we take the natural data that's being produced from the organization and plug it into formulas that have been studied over time so that we can educate and express what the longer term impact is, what put other values on some of the other things that are somewhat difficult to measure, so they can express yourself and what the overall impact is. And there's a lot of education to be done on that, but you're right, um, there's very traditional thinking while they're exploring new things. They're applying their traditional ways of analysis on this new way of doing business. So it's going to take a minute. <laughs> yeah
0: yes
1: (laughs) our firm did an assessment on you because you were one of the winners in a contest in the summer of 2014 and I got to know you in that process so uh, for about six or eight months now we've we've stayed connected so I know that you are not open yet you've way past new concept and all your research and you're ready to open and you're in that place where I call it the catalyst phase where you just sort of need someone to light that match and give you the last bit of funding or the last bit of support to get open as of this recording, which is January of 2015 and what you're attempting to do is your next steps.
0: Yeah. So we're at a, at an exciting time and you know, things are changing daily, which is a a great fun time. We are six to 10 days out from having our first product ready to ship after a year of work, that's an exciting, exciting thing to say. So yeah, our our plan right now is we have finally have shirts that we have in stock and can ship out. So that'll mean visiting with retail stores. And then as we go from there, scaling as much as we can, but doing it in a, in a, in a, I guess, organic way, doing it in a, in a way that allows us to make sure that we stay true to our values. But, you know, as a social entrepreneur, and just as an entrepreneur, obviously, one of the, you know, things that we deal with over and over again is, having this balance of, you know, do we have enough money and, you know, how can we move forward? You can
1: only go so far as your capacity allows us to. You know, I like to say that capacity, if I put that in a formula, it's the desire of your heart of where you want to be plus the resources. That equals your <laughs> that equals your capacity. We know what we want to do, but if you only have so much money or equipment to do what you need to do, your capacity is part of that formula. So right now you're at a stage, I would say, would you agree that you, you need that last bit of funding to, to meet the, your desired level of output to build your capacity? Yeah, yep. Yes, yep.
0: definitely. We're on the hunt for, you know, the funding that'll take us to the next level. And also on, you know, on the hunt for investors that understand, or not, not saying that investors don't understand, but share the same kind of values that we do, because it takes a certain type of investor to to want to put in the time and the energy to really help something like this that, like you mentioned, is a I mean, it's a it's a longer term return both on the social impact and the financial impact.
1: I'd like just for our listening audience just to speak into this investor piece for just a moment. We loosely generalize a term called impact investors here at Gingras Global and Gingras Global Groups, where we work with investors directly and kind of a. A look and feel of an impact investor is an individual or a group of individuals or an organization that's going to go ahead and usually lend their capital, put some money into the deal, but they might be willing to wait a little bit longer time before a return is given back to the investor, or they're willing to take less than they would normally take from a deal. If they're used to getting an 8 or 10%, they might be willing to do a 4 or 5 Because they're aware that not only is there a monetary return potential coming out of the social enterprise, but the impact, the social impact is powerful. And potentially, the whole idea of all of this, folks, is that if an investor can come in and get these social enterprises like Christian and his business, Laszlo, funded, they become self-sustainable. So it's not a constant going back to the well and asking for more money. It's very uh, it's very efficient and it's a smart way to go, but there tends to be a delay in the timing of the return back or a reduced amount of the return. So typically in impact investors are investors who are looking to do a social good and they have a charitable mindset or a heart, but they'd also like to have a return of capital Uh, A third element that uh, we're finding more and more about an impact investor is they're starting to enjoy being able to participate in what I call this frontline experience. They can go down and meet Christian and talk to him and walk around the business and experience what it's like to be working inside of a manufacturing business with some returning citizens. That's not something you get when you're investing in a mutual fund or or some of these larger companies. So it's a different kind of mindset, uh, but there's a growing audience, and that's really the best fit for Laszlo that I would say even as a third-party administrator. Christian, why don't you tell us about your website, how some of the folks could reach out to you?
0: Our website is laslo.co. So that's L-A-Z-L-O dot C-O. It's a contact form on there. You can reach us at info at laslo.co. You can also follow us on Instagram at laslousa. We look forward to hearing from you.
1: Thank you, Christian, for your time. I'm going to reach back out to you. We're going to stay in touch with you and see how this funding is coming along. All right.
0: That sounds great. Thank you so much, Rami.
1: Portions of this podcast have been provided by Rami Gingrass and are copywritten 2015 Gingrass Global LLC and are disseminated by Flatlands Avenue Productions by exclusive arrangement with Gingrass Global LLC.